Well, good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Josh. I uh, have the privilege of being one of the pastors here, and I also have the privilege of bringing God's word to you this morning. Thank you, Jeff. We are going to spend our time in John chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 20 through 26. So if you'd open your Bibles to John chapter 17, if you want to use the Pew Bible, we're going to be on page 903. So in the Pew, Pew Bible, that'll be, be page 903. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take that home, make it yours, read it, get to know our great God through it, and we would love to be able to give that to you. So John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. We've, we, we began, uh, if you were here, or maybe if you remember, we began our journey through John 17, I think back in August, two months ago, right? So maybe you don't remember exactly, or maybe you weren't here that Sunday, but I want to just catch you up where we are in this prayer of our Lord. It's sometimes called the high priestly prayer, or the prayer of consecration, and also sometimes called the other Lord's prayer. It's the longest recorded prayer of Christ that we have in Scripture, and it's brought great joy and great delight to believers throughout the, th the centuries. And so verses 1 through 5, just to recap for you quickly, uh, Jesus prays that the Father would glorify him. And he's asking to be glorified, not so that all the attention would be focused on him, but he says, Father, glorify me that I might glorify you. That is, make much of me so that I can point everyone to you, Father. And then in verses 6 through 19, we see Jesus transition from praying for, for himself to a prayer for his disciples. That is, those who were with him. And he prays specifically for their protection in two ways. Protection from falling away. That is, Father, would you preserve their faith? And then second, he prays, Father, protect them from Satan. And then he prays for their sanctification. That's the big church word for, hey, Father, would you shape them into the image of Christ? Make them look like me. Make my disciples look like me. And so that brings us to verses 20 through 26 today. But before we dive in, I would love to go to our great Father now and ask him for our help. So let's pray. Father, we come to you. We come to you and we ask that you would help us to see your truth from your word this morning. Help us to see you and as we do, help us to delight in Christ who has given his life for us, purchasing us. We rejoice in him, we thank you for him, and it's also in his name we pray, amen. Well, it was on Sunday morning, January 7th, 1866, that Charles Spurgeon ascended the pulpit in the Metropolitan Tabernacle to preach on the unity in Christ. His text was John 17, 20 through 21. So just two verses, and in those two verses, he had five points to his sermon. So we're considering seven verses. Don't worry, I don't even have five points, all right? I've only got two for us. And I will spare you even of Spurgeon's five points, and just tell you his first point to his church there was titled, The Unity Desired. 
the unity that Christ desired. And Spurgeon does as only Spurgeon does, using very strong and vivid language. He goes on to say in this point, talking about the unity that Christ desires for his church, he says, Where the Spirit of God is, there must be love. And if I have once known and recognized any man to be my brother in Christ Jesus, the love of Christ constraineth me no more to think of him as a stranger or foreigner, but as a fellow citizen with the saints. Now I hate high churchism, as my soul hates Satan, but I love George Herbert, although George Herbert is a desperately high churchman. I hate his high churchism, but I love George Herbert from my very soul, and I have a warm corner in my heart for every man who is like him. Let me find a man who loves my Lord Jesus Christ as Herbert did, and I, and I do not ask myself whether I shall love him or not. There is no room for question, for I cannot help myself. Unless I can leave off loving Jesus Christ, I cannot cease loving those who love him. For I cannot help myself unless I can leave off loving Jesus Christ, I cannot cease loving those who love him. Right, I told you, Spurgeon used very strong language. He, he says, I hate high churchism. To which some of you might say, well, yeah, I kind of do too. Right? But he also says in the very next breath, I love Herbert. So, what brings such a deep love for Herbert? It's Herbert's love for Spurgeon's Savior, right? If you are, if if you belong to Christ, if you love Christ, you must also love his people. So a love for Christ unifies God's people. So let's read now John 17, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I am I in them and you in me, that they may become one, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Amen. These are the words of our Savior. And in this, I want us to consider two things. Verses 20 through 23, we're going to see how Jesus prays for the church to be united in him. 
And then in verses 24 through 26, we're going to see Jesus prays for the church to be reunited in him. So we see even in verse 20, as I've, I've told you, that we see these transitions in Jesus' prayer. Well, Jesus now in verse 20 transitions from his praying for the disciples, that is those who are physically with him, to now praying for those who will believe. So he transitions from praying for his disciples to praying for the church, that is everyone who would believe in him throughout all history. This even assumes Jesus Jesus knows or assumes that this mission will be accomplished, that he will accomplish the redemption for a people for himself. And so let's consider now, verses 20 through 23, that Jesus prays for the church to be united in him. We see there in verse 20, right? He says, I do ask for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus is praying and saying, Father, unite them, create them, form these people, my church, through your word. And if we even tracked Jesus' argument throughout this chapter, you would see that the words of the Father go from the Father to the Son. And the Son passes on the Father's words then to his disciples. And then, even in this verse, shows us that the disciples or the apostles then pass on the Father's words to those who will believe in him. God's word, the gospel, has always been essential to bringing about faith in his people. So no one in in the entire history of the world has been saved without the word of God, right? Whether it's a missionary taking the gospel to a foreign nation, or a mom and dad teaching their children about Christ, or a Sunday school teacher or a pastor teaching and preaching God's word. Whether you share the gospel with a coworker or a neighbor, sharing the good news, the word of God, every single person that has ever believed in Christ has been saved through presenting the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You even hear Paul say something similar in Romans chapter 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So Jesus is saying, Father, you're forming my people. You're forming the church through the word. And then he goes on in verses 21 through 23 and prays that the church would be unified. And there's a lot of parallel phrases in verses uh, 20, uh, verse 21 with, with verses 22 and 23. And he prays that the church would be one or that the church would be united. So you can see in verse 21 he says that they, referring to those who believe in him, may all be one. Verse 22, that they may be one. And verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. But this unity is not uniformity, right? Coming to Christ doesn't mean that now we all become the same, same exact person with the same personality and the same uh, everything about us, right? It, it doesn't mean that we have to get rid of our differences. Instead, 
we need to be ever pressing into God, into his word to understand it, and striving after godliness. And where we find ourselves different from other Christians, we still love them dearly. We still love our brothers and sisters in the church, despite our differences. So this unity isn't found in being the exact same person. So then where do we find unity? Well, Jesus doesn't say, well, open your dictionary and let's define unity. He actually says, well, hey, just open your Bible. Read the Bible. Look at what is told to you in God's word. He says, look at my relationship with the Father. Look to Christ and his relationship with the Father as the basis of the church's unity, right? Verse 21, that they, may be, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Matthew Henry's comments, I think, are so helpful on these few verses. He says, The oneness that is between the Father and Son, which is mentioned again and again in these verses, the Father and Son are one, one in nature and essence, equal in power and glory, one in design and one in operation. That is, one in what they accomplish. There's an intimacy in this oneness. They're going after the same things. But even in their oneness, it doesn't mean that there's no distinction. It doesn't mean that we worship a modalistic God, right? It doesn't mean that we have one God that puts on a different mask every time he wants to reveal himself to us. So when God the Father wants to appear, he puts on a father mask. And when Christ the Son wants to appear, he puts on a, a son mask or the Spirit. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not trying to say that there's one person in God. He's saying there's one God but three persons. There's a distinction here. There's a relationship between the Father and the Son. The unity of God's people is to reflect the unity of the Father and the Son. They're one in nature, pursuing the same person, that is Christ, they're united by the same spirit, aiming for the same godly end, which is the glory of God. In the pursuit of God, Tozer says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are, one of, they are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to, one another, to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. So do you, you hear that? Just like the pianos are tuned to one fork, 
The standard to which God's people are tuned is not to one another, but our standard is God himself. It's Christ. So our unity is found in being intimately united to Jesus through faith. And therefore being united to him, we're now united to one another. Just as the branches of a vine are receive their life from the vine, so also we as believers united to Christ receive our life from him. Right? Our, he, he's turned our rebellious nature, all of us coming from different backgrounds, races, socioeconomic status, into one family. He's brought really broken people, all used to pursuing their own selfish desires into a family. Sounds like a recipe for disaster, right? So we should expect differences of opinions, different interests, different ways of viewing a situation. We should even perhaps be expected to be frustrated to some degree about people's personalities. But you don't turn your back on your nuclear family when they make you mad. You don't rant and rave on social media about how irritating your brother is. A family bears with one another. A family discusses their differences even face to face. A family does away with Twitter wars and Facebook rants. And I was even informed by the elders, which most of them are even older than me, so I don't know how they found, about, found out about this before me, but apparently there's some meta or metaverse or something like that that I don't even know about that uh, the 70-year-olds are teaching me about. But social media has never been used to suppress the flames of political enemies. Social media has never ended wars of ideas. Sarcastic and cutting social media posts are really good at flaming the fl flaming, fanning the flames of anger and outrage. So if we're to look at your social media accounts, if we were to look at the speech and the way that you think about people, what would we see? Would we primarily see your political persuasions, your frustrations and your angers? Or perhaps would we see a love for Christ? Would we see love and charity towards others even when they disagree with you? What would be most evident, most telling about you? God's people, living in love with one another and in community with one another, even when we're different, that highlights the greatness of our God. Even when we're different, yet loving and serving one another highlights the glory of God because the diversity of personalities and backgrounds and races all living as one, it glorifies the wonderful work of salvation in Christ. Because that then is what binds us together. And it shows the world that there's something far more beautiful, far more important, and far more grand than our differences. It shows us Christ. It shows the world Christ. And let's look at verses 21 and 23 to see the results of unity. Because these are visible results, or at least they should be visible results, things that people looking at the church can see. 
that they can see that we are one and that, that we are one, not just because we say we are, but because we actually live like we are. So result number one, that the world will believe in Christ if we are one. You see that in two different places. Verse 21, they may all be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then again in verse 23, they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. So if we as God's people, and even you could say the church at large, is living as God's people, as one, loving one another in Christ, the world will see there is something about these people that despite their differences is so compelling. What is it that's changed them? What is it that helps them to say, yes, they're different, but I still love them? It's Christ. That will be compelling to an outside world. They will look upon our Savior and say, he is wonderful. Right? And then, then result number two. The second result of our unity is that the world will know believers are loved by the Father and the Son. Look at verse 23 with me. They may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you loved them, even as you loved me. So D.A. Carson says about this, he says, The unity of the disciples, as it approaches the perfection that is, that it's, is its goal, serves to convince many in the world that Christians have been caught up into the love of the Father for the Son, secure and content and fulfilled, because they are loved by the Almighty himself with the very same love that he reserves for his Son. So the unity of God's people, it, it adorns the gospel. It makes the gospel more palatable because believers see, hey, this actually affects change in them. There's actually something so great that they're willing to lay aside their differences and love one another because they love their great Savior. It shows the onlooking world that they're content, they're secure in something greater than themselves. That there's a God who loves them in the same way that he loves his almighty Son who came and died. God the Father loves us, his children, like that. That ought to bring security and contentment. That ought to fulfill us in this life. So that means we cannot live, or we can't live rightly, the Christian life alone. Right? If, if we're to be one, you can't be one by yourself. That has this idea of there's at least more than one. So pursuing the Christian life alone, saying I love Jesus but I don't like the church, that's anti gospel. That's anti-God, in fact. We cannot live the Christian life alone. We must live with God's people. So I want to ask you, are you living in unity with other believers? Are you living in unity with the believers within this church? Is there perhaps somebody you need to seek out to be reconciled to? Realizing that you have the same Savior they do. And if that person has offended you, 
Think how much more you have offended God. And yet he still in love sent Christ to die for you. Can't you then also lay aside your pride? Forgiving others. Living as one as God's people. That it might be a powerful witness to the world. That Christ is great. And as good as this is. As good as it, as it is that we are told by Christ that we are one with other believers in him. He then goes on to pray even more for the church. In verses 24 through 26, we see Jesus prays for the church to be reunited in him. Consider again with me verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Christ is praying for the church, for his people, to be in his presence. And he's not saying, hey, Father, I want them to be with me here in Jerusalem. He's talking about heaven. So he's praying that the church would be with him in heaven. And who is the church? Well, verse 21 even helps us out there. It says, those whom the Father has given to Christ. So if you're here today without Christ, you can have him today. Scripture tells us, even as I've already read, that anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you are without him today, you remain dead in your sin, so long as you're apart from Christ. Without Christ, you have no hope for eternal life with God. But if you would bow and knee to King Jesus trusting in his death and his resurrection, you will be saved. And all who are given to Christ, it says, by the Father, they'll believe. And so would you even bow a knee to King Jesus today? Would you place faith in him and receive the words of Christ as sweet honey to your ears by believing? Jesus longs for his church. He wants his church to be with him. So when you think about heaven, what is it that comes to mind? Is it the pearly gates or the golden streets or absence of sickness and death? Is it even an absence of sin? Right? All of those would be wonderful things. They'd be actually quite amazing things, right? Right? We long for that, actually. But would you be content with those things if God weren't there? Don't be so quick to answer. Because let's, let's even just think about human relationships for a second, right? If your human relationships, every single one of them, were without sin, that would be pretty amazing. Husbands, not sinning against wives. Wives not sinning against husbands. Children not sinning against their siblings and their parents. And co-workers not frustrating and sinning against one another. Think about how different this life would be. How peaceful it would be if just one of those things, the absence of sin and relationships, was gone. That'd be amazing. To which all of us probably right now are saying, I, I would love that to happen. 
But if we had that without